Can I invite you to take God's word, if you have a copy of God's word, and turn it to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, and I'm going to ask uh, Rachel Sproul to come, and she's going to begin reading in verse 11. So that is Revelation 19 and verse 11. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thank you so much for reading, Rachel. Yesterday, I was on a trail uh, nearby, and as I approached a certain part of that trail, there was this big limb that was essentially a log that had fallen across the trail, and it was blocking the path, blocking the path to such a degree, like, you're not going to ignore it. So you really couldn't go around it. Your only option was to kind of step jump over it, and that was what you were going to have to do if you wanted to continue on the trail. It was going to affect your next steps. It was unavoidable. And we come to something similar in Revelation, something that gets our attention. I I at least want to set the stage with a little review of where we've been. If you've been with us the last few weeks, or even if not, a few weeks ago we looked at this scene of worship in Revelation from Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 where people are gathered around the throne and there's worship of the one on the throne as well as the lamb. And it reminds us that that isn't just a a picture way off in the distance, but my life should be given to worshiping the one on the throne and the lamb. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Revelation 7, which gave us another scene, another image. And that was a scene of people from every nation, uh, a group of people from every nation, every tribe, every ethnicity, every language. And it was an awesome picture because it was gathered around Jesus Christ saying, salvation belongs to our God. The whole group was saying salvation belongs to our God. And again, it was a reminder that that isn't just something off in the distance. My life is meant to be lived in community, a community that's been saved, that has been rescued, that says together, like we've said, Jesus Christ is our living hope. That's what we sang together, people from every, every race, every ethnicity. There's another picture that we looked at last week, and it was the scene of a wedding. It's a beautiful picture of a wedding and the feast, the reception afterward, the lamb who's Jesus has a bride, people who've been ready to meet him. And it's a picture even now that my life is meant to be lived in faithful readiness for meeting Jesus. So we've seen these images, we've seen these pictures, but then kind of like the, the limb that is across the trail 
and Revelation, you come to a question that I think you've got to answer. And that question is, what ultimately happens to those who reject God? We've talked about the the ones who worship him, but what if someone rejects him? What if they end up cursing God? What is going to happen to those who don't love the lamb but despise the lamb? Try to hurt, try to eliminate his followers. What happens to those who refuse to submit to the rule of God and even intentionally end up hurting or seeking to destroy everything good that he's made in this world? What ultimately happens to those who choose to worship anything and everything except for God? Those who align against God and try to end the reign of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, on this earth. What happens? I fear the way that some people have put together some form of Christianity is they put it together trying to avoid this question at all costs. It's almost like the one thing that cannot ever be talked about is what happens to those who don't believe but choose to reject. And maybe there's a caution of bothering someone or hurting feelings, but it's a pathetic approach to just dodge truth because it's inconvenient or might make us feel a little uncomfortable. We have to be careful when we handle God's word correct, to to handle God's word correctly. Absolutely, we've got to be careful, but we don't have to be fearful of the truth. When God's word is read, that's the truth. We don't have to be afraid. So the question is, what happens to those who reject God and the Lamb? What we do know is, and we can say emphatically, for those who had rejected him, but in the season of salvation turn from their rejection of him and turn to him and trust him and follow him? When they repent, what we know is even though their sins are many, his mercy is more. That's what we know for certain. Those who turn and trust in Jesus, they receive life, eternal life, life to the fullest. Those who place their faith in Christ during the season of salvation. See, that's our hope for everyone. That's my hope for everyone who comes through the doors of Ogletown, everyone who lives in this county of ours, everyone that lives in these four states around us, everyone who lives in our nation, in our world. We want to see people trusting in Jesus. That's our hope for you. And if you've not yet like put your faith in Jesus, we certainly would want to have a conversation with you today about that. But again, what if Someone decides not to. That's the log across the trail. And if we never get to the point of asking or dealing with that question, we're dealing with kiddie stories. We might as well turn on PBS Kids or Disney Junior, where no one does anything really, really bad. There aren't any bad guys, not any really, really mean people. But friends, that's not reality, and you know that. That isn't what the Bible says. This isn't certainly any scare tactics, but we can all be grown-ups in the room today and recognize there are people who oppose God. 
There are people who choose not to repent. There are people who will not change their heart and mind. Revelation 2 talks about it. In, in, in Revelation 9 talks about it. In Revelation 16 talks about those that even as they're dealing with the judgment of God, they still choose not to repent. As a matter of fact, not repenting. They curse God. They say, we, we, we don't want you. We don't want your rule. We don't want your reign. But that shouldn't surprise us because in Exodus 8, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to the words of God. It shouldn't surprise us because Second Chronicles says in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became more faithless. In the time of his distress, he became more faithless to the Lord. Jeremiah 2 says they took no correction. Jesus says John the Baptist came and he was a messenger, came in the way of righteousness. But people didn't believe. Some believed, but many absolutely refused to believe. There are those who reject and oppose God and this creates conflict. The Old Testament is a record. All we have to do is read it, a record of people opposing God, of people warring against the people of God, people rejecting his rule, killing the priests, killing the prophets because they don't want to hear from God. When you come to the New Testament, the picture of the cross, oh, we love that. We love the imagery of the cross. We sing about the beauty of the cross. And yet, in some ways, it's also a war scene because that's, that's the picture we have from Scripture, that Jesus was going to battle and as he died on the cross, there was victory there for us. As he rose from the dead, there was victory there over his enemies. As he ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of the, the Father now, there is victory in that picture. The cross is a scene of battle. It's a scene of intense conflict. And as he died and was buried and rose again and as ascended, he's created a new people, a new people that are turning and trusting and following him. The New Testament says those people who follow Jesus, they are in a struggle. So again, we're, we're just trying to understand. We could, we could dive a lot deeper, but we're trying to understand that the Bible presents a clear category for those that don't receive the lamb, they reject him. Those who are following Jesus now, we're in a struggle. I don't have to tell you that. But Jesus said, the enemy Satan has come and he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. Ephesians 6 says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but we are wrestling spiritually against spiritual wickedness. 2 Corinthians 10 says, we have weapons and they aren't earthly. They're spiritual weapons. First Peter, I was listening as Matt read. First Peter 5.8 says, be alert, be vigilant, be aware because you have an enemy, an adversary, the, the devil is a roaring lion. He is seeking, he's seeking someone here. He's seeking many of us to, de- to devour. Hebrews 11 and 12 say, there are those that resist spiritual darkness at the cost of shedding blood. Galatians says, there is a present darkness around us. I, again, Definitely not any intent to scare. It's just to remind us that we're not living in a realm of fairy tales. If you, if you decided to go through your Bible and just kind of take a, a, a black sharpie and mark out every place that talked about spiritual conflict or people that oppose God, you would not be left with much of a Bible. Your Bible then would not even make sense. And maybe an, another thing we could say is if you tried to eliminate all of that, your life would not make sense. There's a real struggle to do right. I think of all the students who will go back to school soon. I think of those 
in our church who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And they go into environments, and those environments can be quite hostile because there's language that everybody else is using, but a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't. There are jokes that everybody else is laughing at and humor everybody else uses. But you're the one odd person who doesn't go down that path. There are texts that everybody sends, but you're not a part of it. There's parties that you choose because of your faith in Jesus you don't go to. There there are groups of people that are making fun of others and you choose not to be a part of that and actually kind of swerve into traffic to to try to watch those that are, are vulnerable. You do that knowing that you will be made fun of, knowing that that may cost you something. It's a real struggle. And it certainly doesn't end at school. I have a friend who's a deacon and because, certainly not perfect, but because Because he stands for what is right, because he does his job under the lordship of Jesus Christ, he faces opposition. That's that's probably not uncommon for some of you. It's not that you went out looking for a fight. You're just doing the right thing, trying to be faithful in your place of service, and yet you realize there is a battle. So if you try to comprehend God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and righteousness and grace and mercy and forgiveness— but you also don't appreciate sin, wickedness, evil, Satan, the demonic, the Bible just stops making sense. So what happens to those who reject? Revelation brings to a a climax the answer to that question. But it does so in a way that may surprise us. So in answering that question... Revelation 19 first tells us, we're going to answer that question, but you have to. To answer that question, you've got to take a closer look at Jesus. If you're going to answer that question, Revelation 19, what Rachel read a moment ago, 11 to 16, you're going to have to take a closer look at Jesus. There's lots of different ways to categorize and put together the the teaching here. But I I want us to look at five descriptions in Revelation 19. Three of them are names and two others are characteristics of the rider on the horse that's presented in Revelation 19. So the rider on the horse is Jesus. It's none other than the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And the first description is a name. So it's in verse 11 of Revelation 19. It says, the rider on the horse, his name is called Faithful and True. The rider of the horse is the one who brings truth and brings justice. He's described in Revelation a few times as the faithful and true witness, but now he's not just the faithful and true witness. He is that. He's told us the truth about who God is. He's faithful and true in and of himself. That's exactly what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus was teaching over and over again, you you read especially in the book of John, where he says something like this, truly, truly, I say to you, I am telling you the truth. He is faithful and true. And that really matters because the scripture also says in righteousness, he judges and makes war. When he judges, when he executes his judgment, okay, so we're focusing on, on the rider on, on the horse. We're focusing on Jesus. We're answering the question, what happens to those who reject? But first we're looking at Jesus. And what we find out is whenever he makes a judgment, he makes the right one. 
if you're going to set the world to the way it's supposed to be. If you're going to bring justice, you better be right. If you're going to claim to have all authority in heaven and on earth, we've got to be able to trust you. There's eternity at stake. There's one at the center, and the one at the center calling the shots has to be trusted. And this says he is faithful and true. You can trust him. We have a strong desire that whoever's going to make decisions is ever going to do anything, they need to do it in the right way. We want justice. We all want it. We all want it. We all want it in small personal ways. Ways that actually don't feel that small. So if your boss were to give you a performance review, and let's say it was less than ideal, less than positive, my guess is more often than not, our reflex in that is go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I did this, I did this, I did... That's not... Are you sure you used the right word? You said always. I can remember. I mean, we would want to argue that because, because we have a sense of justice, personal justice. Our meter goes high. Our meter goes high when you treat one of our kids unjustly. I mean, you're ready to like... We need to have a conversation about this because I noticed this, this, and this, but when it came to my kid, you really didn't seem to... And our justice meter goes goes high, runs high on that. It's even silly things like, like you're dutifully waiting your turn in line and then all of a sudden you see this car just zipping down the median, which they are not supposed to drive on. They pass 25 cars, go right to the end and then zip in front and save two and a half minutes off their commute that you should have been able to, to save, but you didn't because you did the right thing. It's like, this is so not right. I can't stand people like that. Our heart, like, forgetting, I think I did that like five times last week. We have this justice meter that says the right thing ought to be done. We want justice. We don't want celebrities to get away, just get away with things just because they had money. Even things far away from us in the world, like, I'm glad when justice is done for war crimes with people I've never met, people groups that I've, I've never really known. It's like, okay, justice was done. We want justice. And because of that, we want the person who is meeting out the justice, the judge, the jury, we want them to be filled with righteousness. One thing that helps me when I am filled with anxiety, when I'm filled with uncertainty, is knowing, is knowing that Jesus is faithful and true. I can count on him to do what's right. I can count on him to do things well in my life. I can count on him to make things right. I can be filled with gratitude and hope because I can trace God's faithfulness to me. He's faithful and true. That's where it starts. The one on the worst is called Faithful and True, but he has another name. He has a name in verse 13. He also is called the Word of God. So he has another name here. He's the one who reveals God. That's what it means in his name. So when God speaks, he's revealing who he is. When he, when he acts and he talks, we are hearing from God about God. And it says this rider on the horse, his name is the Word of God. So we're getting self-disclosure of who God is, but it also says in his mouth is a sword. And the sword so often in scripture, it takes us pretty immediately to the words of God. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is, is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. 
Ephesians 6, take the sword, which is the word of God. So this is the, the spoken word of our Lord. He speaks. This is the word that accomplishes things. Isaiah 55, my word that comes from my mouth, God says, will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. The word of God. So yes, we have a faithful and true, but what, when he speaks, that all that faithfulness and truth is being revealed. We're hearing from him, and that is so important. I, I find myself in kind of things, okay, we got through today, what's, what's tomorrow? And there's all kinds of noise in our world. There's all kinds of voices. There's all kinds of, of people saying, this is the way, I, this is the truth, this is what you should believe. How do we process it all? And coming through loud and clear, the noise of our culture is the word of God that promises, that promises to be a lamp to our feet that says, you can trust this, I'm revealing myself to you. A light to your path. You want to know the way you should walk? Then although the, there may be a ton of noise in the world, this is the path. This is the food for your soul. This is what can sustain you for a long obedience in the same direction. He's called the word of God. He is also called in verse 16, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one who is complete. He's the one who rules absolute terms. And I, the description is filled with this picture of him as king of kings and Lord of lords. And you even get the picture of, okay, so it says in verse 12, his eyes are as a flaming fire. And I know there's symbolism there, but what is that, what is that telling us? It tells us when he looks at things, when he sees things, we might not see everything clearly. I can't read the intentions. I can't read the motives of your heart, but that is not a problem for Jesus. He knows it all kind of piercing everything that is like surface, everything that is a a facade, a mirage. He is going right through that, and he's seeing everything clearly. He knows motive. He knows intention. And he has crowns on his head. And other times it says that there are other beasts and other other figures in in Revelation that have seven crowns and ten crowns. But here he has many crowns. Like, we're we're not counting how many because he rules everything. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of Lords. He is all powerful. He has a name that no one can name. And that was a picture in the Old Testament. If you had someone's name, that may mean leverage over them. But is anybody ever going to tell Jesus, I've got some leverage over you? Never. No one has the upper hand. He's called King of Kings, Lord of Lords. In the Old Testament, that is a strict description of God the Almighty. And now it's also applied to God the Son, Jesus Christ. We have to take notice of this one who rules. It's amazing because this picture, he would be a very intimidating, imposing person. But we prayed in his name a moment ago. We sang his name a moment ago. Certainly we have the fear of the Lord, but this isn't like we're cowering because we know him. Maybe even more critically, he knows us. That's why Romans 8 could say, if God is for us, and he is for us in Christ, well then who could be against us? We're more than conquerors. He's for us, and he's with us. Do I see this? Do I, do I trust this? Faithful and true, word of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. Fourth description, it's not so much a name, but it's a picture in verse 14 of this one riding on the horse. It says he's got an army with him. 
Regularly, Jesus has a multitude of either angelic beings or human beings around him, and, he, and this is no different. He's gathered an army, and the army is ready and aligned. They're invested in the cause of Jesus. If you're a follower of him, you are part of that army. And it also says, a fifth description is he's mighty in battle. He, he is going to war. The description is going to emphasize and re-emphasize this. Verse 11, he makes war. He's going to end the violence by setting that down, coming as the prince of peace who will guarantee peace when he's finally finished. It says his robe has been dipped in blood. It's a, it's a picture, it's a graphic picture, and there's differences of opinion from people who've studied Revelation probably a lot longer than you or I have studied it. Some would say that robe that's dipped in blood is the, the blood of his enemies. And there's pictures in Isaiah 62 and 63 that give that imagery. But you'll also read in Revelation, whenever it talks about Jesus and blood, it's more often than not his own blood, that he purchases people. Yes, he went to war. He went to war on the cross, and he bled for those that were his enemies. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, and shed his blood to make us reconciled with the Father. The picture is war. In verse 15, nations will be struck down and ruled with a rod of iron. The wrath of God will come against sin and evil. When the rider comes, when Jesus returns, he is victorious. Take a closer look at Jesus because I suspect for many of us, maybe we've grown up in church all our lives. Maybe not, but but I imagine many of you have been in church a long, long time. Could it be that you have an incomplete view of Jesus? I think it's intellectually honest to read this description in Revelation 19 11 of Jesus and go, I don't believe it. I don't believe such a person ever existed. I don't believe they ever will exist. I think that's at least intellectually honest. I would want you, I would beg you to have a different opinion. But what is not honest is to read this picture of Jesus and somehow kind of default into a a pick and choose Jesus. Where you find yourself going, you know, I... I really, really like the neither do I condemn you, Jesus. But this picture of faithful and true and robe dipped in blood, ah, I don't care for that Jesus. I like to think of Jesus as a... I don't think that's intellectually honest. I don't think we can play games where we love the Jesus who is so, so interested in us living up to our potential. But the word of God, Jesus, that tells us this is how it is, I don't think we can pick and choose and say the bread and fish Jesus that feeds lots of people when when they're hungry. I love that Jesus. King of kings and Lord of lords Jesus. I don't know that I'm... I think we got to interpret some things differently. We have a clear picture of Jesus that emerges and the description isn't meant to terrify, but it is meant like sit up and take notice We've got to have that clear picture of Jesus, but I also want us to take a closer look at something else, and that's the verses that follow this description of the rider on the horse. And those verses make us take a closer look at the battle scene. The battle scene. Revelation is filled with images, and and we're not digging into all of them, but, but I do want you to look at this one in Revelation 19 and verse 17. I want us to take a closer look at the battle scene. We've got characters that have been 
kind of looming large in Revelation, we've got characters like the beast and the false prophet, the antichrist, the false prophet. These are characters that are talked about pretty regularly. And now we read what happens to them. What happens to those who reject the lamb, reject the one on the throne? Revelation 19 and verse 17, John saw an angel. He says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, of captains, of mighty men, of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, small and great. First scene is this confident, like gather the birds because it's dinner time. I don't know of any other picture. I mean, I, I, I love reading military history. And when someone's getting ready to go into a big battle, a lot of times there's confidence, but there is not anything quite like this. Often it's like we must, you know, fight for the country, fight for each other, fight for our cause, and may God have mercy on us. That's the way it almost always sounds. And here, it's speaking as if it's over. It is over. Let's keep reading. Verse 19, I saw the beast. That's the Antichrist pictured in the, in the Revelation. And the kings of the earth with their armies, they were gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in his, its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Just like that, those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. These two lead characters from the book of Revelation, false prophet, the one who's used his words to deceive and lead a rebellion against the lamb, the one who's on the throne, the beast, the one who's used his power in the world system to defy God. They're both locked up and it's over. It's over just like that. Then there's one more description in verse 21. The rest, it says, the rest were slain. So this whole army that had gathered against the lamb against the one on the the horse. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. A graphic scene, but what's stunning is how quickly it's over. All the opposition. Colossians and Hebrews both talk about Jesus holding this world together by just his word. And here we see such a different picture of Jesus and his word. It is is a, a word that just ends any opposition. We've asked the question, what happens to those who reject God? What happens to those who curse the lamb? What happens to those who never repent? Here's the final answer. The judgment comes. Revelation 20 is an extension of it. I'm struck by a few things. I'm struck by what doesn't happen. Again, even right now, I'm reading a book uh, describing some military history in World War II. About 400 pages into this book, and it's just still setting up, setting up, setting up, setting up, setting up. 
this general. We got plenty of maps and we got charts and we got this general and this general and this person and this person, this setting, this setting, this logistics supply, this. And it's like setting up for this big battle. And, and it'll take many more pages to describe this battle that goes over weeks and months. I am struck. This battle is over in an instant. It's done. This isn't a battle. It's a decisive victory of Jesus. And I'm also struck by, look at who doesn't participate in the battle. It's interesting, in verse 14, like, we're part of the army. We're on the army aligned with King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But you'll notice, we don't fight. He's the one who fights with the sword, with his words. I mean, I understand Revelation has been misread and misused like foster crusades, but if we would just read it clearly, it's not us who are, who are going out the battle. It is the one on the throne who does the, the battle. And in the next chapter, Satan and all those who did not bow to Jesus come to an end. It's not the time to get into all the specifics of what we believe about everything related to end times, but I do want you to read this description. It comes from our statement of faith. I think so clearly, put some things together of what we believe happens in the end. It's not scripture, and, and men and women put this together, but still, it gives us some clarity. It says this, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. Praise God. The dead will be raised. Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward, will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. The Bible doesn't dodge questions even if the answers sometimes leave us with a lot to think about, as this passage does. A lot to think about. What happens to those who reject? We've read. They're dealt with by the rider on the horse. We've taken a closer look at Jesus. We've taken a closer look at the battle scene. But I would tell you, you and I have missed the glory of this picture if this doesn't do something inside our soul. And I think what it's supposed to do in our soul is make us long for the day when Jesus brings all this to pass. We pray things like, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done, and here is where it happens. We want sinful things confronted and judged. We want wrong stuff made right. We want silly stuff to be exposed to be nothing more than a vapor that isn't going to last. And here's when it happens. So it ought to be doing this in our heart. There's a time, there's a time, don't get me wrong, to ask questions like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And I don't know about this. And what about this? But this is the time to say, what about Jesus? What about when he comes? What about his faithful and true testimony to who God is? What about Jesus? What about his existence in eternity as King of kings and Lord of lords? What about Jesus as the rightful ruler of this earth? What about Jesus who, although he was ruler of the world, 
gave it all up in sacrifice for us, for our sin. What about Jesus and his patience for those who've rejected him, those who've killed his followers? What about Jesus? When we take this look at Jesus, we see something else. We see Jesus for who he is, and I can't be nonchalant about Well, maybe people trust in Jesus or maybe not. I can't be nonchalant about that, not if I see this picture of Jesus. I I can't be half-hearted in my worship of him. I can't sing like, you're my living hope, half-heartedly, not if I have this picture. If I have this picture, I can't be indifferent to hearing him speak to me. I can't be, if if I read, if I listen to God's word, if I don't, it doesn't make that much of a difference, not if this picture is true. I can't be casual when it comes to fighting things that take my eyes off him. We've, we've missed the glory of this picture if we're not longing for the day that Jesus is bringing. But we've also, we've also missed, I think, the glory of this picture if all it does in us as Christians is cause us to become smug that we're on the right team. Jesus instills confidence in us, but there's nothing smug about the confidence he has. Cockiness is certainly not part of the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the smug who are on the right team and can tell everybody else, you know where you can go. If you get that out of this, no, our our spiritual sensitivities are heightened. Christians are called to grieve over the darkness because you and I know people that are blinded by it, hurt by it. We're grieved by the world system. We're grieved by its influence. We pray. We don't, we don't just laugh, kind of self-assured, puffed up. We pray. We're not going to love the world. We're not going to be conformed to it. We're going to shine its lights in it. We have a growing intensity of like we're fighting our flesh because we want to purify ourselves to be ready to meet Jesus. We struggle for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, knowing Jesus. We have a growing hatred of the devil. We resist him. We resist him. We love God with all of our heart. And we go into this world that is frankly filled with, filled with the demonic, filled with all kinds of people that oppose God and have no time for him. And it is in that world where we make disciples, where we love our neighbor, where we love our enemies. And we testify to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And we say, someday he's coming. Someday he's coming. And with our lives and with our lips, we say, you have to trust him. You have to believe. And we wait. It's an act of waiting, isn't it? It's an act of waiting, sharing good news that today, today is the day of salvation. Today is. Today's the day of hope. Today's the day of mercy. And with that, we wait in hope and confidence. Say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Our Father, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us today. I pray that not one person would walk away in terror, but I do pray that many of us would be drawn in the right sense of of the fear of the Lord. I pray that you would drive people to determine, am am I really trusting in this one or... Do I have a form of religion? I pray that we would hear your word clearly and not try to turn the volume down or 
change the channel today? Let us hear and let us be eager to please you, eager to serve you. We have a picture of who you are. May we be faithful till you come. We are prone to wander. So just seal our hearts for your courts above. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.